Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with David Brigham, editor of 200 Years, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania from 1824 to 2024, published by the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and distributed by the University of Pennsylvania Press. 200 Years is the first book to survey the more than 21 million documents, newspapers, graphics, and rare books in the archive of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, published with the anniversary of the Society's founding 200 years ago. The book presents more than, the book presents 100 essays highlighting artifacts spanning the 17th to the late 20th century, drawing on everything from letters and maps, paintings and photographs, family Bibles, and musical scores. This book reflects on the early days of the nation, the relationships colonists had with indigenous peoples, the development of Philadelphia, and the evolution of banking, engineering, and medicine, among other industries. David Brigham is the librarian and CEO of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. David, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much. I look forward to our conversation. Um, Before we start talking about this book, would you mind introducing yourself a little to listeners? I would really love if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of path your education took, and what brought you to the work you do now at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Thank you for that, Jen. I grew up in Ellington, Connecticut, which is a small town between Hartford and Springfield. Uh, I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Connecticut, and I earned uh, two bachelor's degrees, an accounting degree and an English degree. And uh, my, my parents were children of the depression and my dad really strongly encouraged us to get a practical uh, four-year professional degree. So the approved list of diplomas was engineering, uh, accounting or finance, uh, nursing, uh, things like that, you know, where there was a, a job that was more or less um, recession proof at the other end of the diploma. Uh, when I, decided by the end of my junior year that the career I really wanted to have was in arts and culture. He was very supportive of that. 
and I went to the University of Pennsylvania and earned my PhD in the uh, American Civilization Department, uh, which had a museum studies uh, master's degree uh, along the way. So it was perfect because it enabled me to go directly on to graduate school to have what I imagine would be a career in art museums, which is where I spent uh, most of my first 30 years um, professionally after graduate school. And, um, and uh, you know, that, that has been an extremely rewarding uh, career path for me. Uh, three years ago, I was asked to consider competing for my current role as librarian and CEO at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, uh, a place that I have been using for my own scholarship since 1986, which is the year that I started at Penn in the MA PhD program. Um, so it, it's been an important uh, place for me, a, a place of you know, scholarly uh, inspiration. And it's a place that has fueled uh, four of my most substantial projects, um, starting with my dissertation on Charles Wilson Peel and his Museum of Art and Science. That's fantastic uh, to come to an institution after such a long relationship with it. Uh, so it's clearly... it's yeah thank you Jen it, it's really exciting and I'm I'm loving it and uh you know uh to to arrive in 2020 uh as as HSP was facing its 200th anniversary was an especially an especially auspicious moment uh to join the organization so uh yeah it feels great and I'm loving it okay. so turning to this book uh I would love to hear more about the goals and intentions that you had for working on this project. It's really impressive and ambitious. It's really heavy. <laughs> um, it's, it's a pretty formidable book. Uh, what are some of the things you hoped it would do in the world? Well, uh, it's a great question. You know, again, uh, 2020 was obviously a year when we were all just really wondering about any kind of future. The pandemic was, um, you know, had had really pretty much shut down uh, civic and public life, and you know, uh, we we're all grappling with uh, whether and how our organizations might uh, survive, and you know, just really asking some pretty big questions about uh, the safety of the world that we lived in, and what kinds of things would be economically viable. Um, so that also was a relatively quiet moment. Uh, because a lot of things were put on hold and it gave me and my staff and the board at HSP the chance to really uh, dive into a new strategic planning uh, process. We, we had a plan that was out of date um, and we did a lot of surveying of members. And uh, one of the things that became immediately apparent was that we had no single book, no, no volume that could help us to introduce uh, HSP's amazing collections to new audiences or to entice uh, scholars, students, uh, educators who had used the collection before to come back. So having a beautiful book uh, that would be, um, uh, again, an enticement was, was really the impetus for the book. So it was the combination of the 200th year uh, anniversary coming up and the need to bring more people into the institution, uh, to use the collections, to activate the collections, uh, to inspire our donors, for, for our patrons to see what's here, um, 
uh, almost everyone has a limited knowledge of what's in the collection. You know, even myself, having used the collection for 35 years, there were things that I gravitated towards, mostly uh, related to art and cultural history from the 18th to the 20th century. So to me, it felt like a broad swath. But when you compare it to the breadth of the collections, it's a tiny little fragment of what's here. So uh, it's a daunting task to, to sort of dive into a collection with 21, 22 million items and identify uh, 100 items about which to, uh, to commission essays uh, that, that can help collectively tell the story of what this institution is. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that selection process. Uh, there's a hundred entries in the book. Each displays an item, or in some cases, there's like two items juxtaposed uh, from the collections. And I would love to know more about the selection criteria that you had for choosing them and, and how they help illustrate the evolution of the historical societies as an institution? Yeah, uh, uh, another great question, Jen. So uh, I quickly realized that this was such a daunting task, I could not tackle it alone. So I put together an editorial committee. And uh, the editorial committee uh, consists of myself, uh, three board members who are all PhDs, uh, uh, Walter Licht, who's a labor and industrial historian, uh, Elizabeth Milroy, who's a cultural uh, an art historian, Martha Hudson Saxton, who's also an art historian, um, and Alice George, who is uh, a journalist and uh, a PhD scholar in 20th century American history, who writes about the Cold War and, and uh, things, you know, in political and cultural uh, events and, and histories in the late part of the 20th century. Uh, Randall Miller joined our team. Randall had been the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, which is HSP's magazine. It goes back to the late 19th century. And it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, you know, scholarly journals of American history that's still in publication. Uh, Lee Arnold, who was uh, our uh, librarian at the time, and Lee was retiring from that position, but still very active and, and still holds a position here as emeritus librarian and, and comes to HSP uh, throughout every week. Um, and Christina Larocco, who's the current uh, editor of the PMHB, our magazine. So the eight of us meet about every two weeks and discuss the very question that you just posed to me. What is this book? How, how does it get shaped? Um, and what we decided uh, was to focus on our American history collections. It's what we're best known for, and it's what we have the greatest depth for. The collection does go back to 14th century Europe, uh, and we do have quite a few European uh, materials. But we decided to start uh, with William Penn and the formation of the Pennsylvania colony uh, in the 1680s, and to go up to the late 20th century, the collection goes up to the present moment, um, so the span of the items chosen is 1682 to 1976. Uh, we could have gone in both directions chronologically, uh, but th those were the parameters. Uh, we decided that the book uh, should reflect, again, the breadth and quality of the collection. Uh, we easily could have stayed with, you know, uh, famous people like William Penn and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, 
of which the collections are uh, abundant. But we decided that the collections also have the power to tell the stories of underrepresented people. You mentioned indigenous people in your uh, introduction, uh, women, people of color. Uh, in 2001, HSP absorbed the Balsh Institute for Ethnic Studies. So uh, that is another enormous collection that came to us. And it helps to tell the immigrant story for people coming from about 80 nations around the world. Um, so while our name implies that we are telling Pennsylvania histories, we, we certainly have the capacity to do that, but the collections are much broader. Um, and we wanted to convey that. We wanted to convey that while many people think of us as, you know, sort of colonial and early national, uh, as a colonial and early national repository, uh, the collections really have incredible strength right up to the present moment. Um, and uh, that they cover cultural labor, um, you know, uh, economic, all, all kinds of histories. Um, so, so that was the goal. And then there was the desire to strike a balance between iconic items, items that are, you know, clearly uh, treasures, uh, national treasures, uh, with things that might be more ordinary, but but might belong to something much larger. So sometimes, uh, for example, the Wilson drafts of the United States Constitution fit that you know icon treasures mode, and then you know the collections of the Cox Mining Company uh, literally fill a thousand boxes and occupy you know half of a room. Um, and you know so there's probably not a single document in those thousand boxes that, that rises to the level of, you know, iconic importance of the Wilson drafts of the constitution. But uh, collectively they tell about uh, land acquisition in the 18th century. Uh, they tell about the formation of the anthracite coal industry, which fueled uh, the industrial revolution in the late 19th century. They tell about labor history, there are labor strikes, uh, the Molly Maguire's are a figure in the documentation. Uh, the Pinkerton Company is hired uh, to root out the anarchists and the protesters. And um, so it, it just tells an, a very, very rich story of American industrial and labor history. So, so the criteria were evolving and the desire was to represent uh, collectively the strength and breadth uh, of the collections. I'm sure it was very difficult to choose. Oh, it, was, it was, it was hard. It was fun too. You know, we, we realized that at some point it's an absurd exercise to try to choose 100 items to represent 21 million. But we, we also sort of set a standard that every essay, uh, should attract a scholar an educator, uh, to want to dive deeper into the collection that, uh, the essays are approximately 500 words a piece. And so they, they would be appetizers rather than a full meal. And that, that everyone uh, would point to other aspects of the collection. Sometimes there are sidebars that say, you know, uh, like Amazon, if you like this selection, uh, you can go over here and find more in these eight collections. Um, but the idea is to sort of provide a hook and to say, you know, if you're, if you're interested in uh, in gender studies, or you're interested in 
uh, world wars or you're interested in you know propaganda art uh we have it and here's an example and there's more there are a thousand uh examples like this there are you know eight more collections like this so that we we hope that every one of those essays will result in a year a decade a generation in another book another dissertation another documentary um a creative project um so that the book is meant to be a beginning rather than a final word. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I'm really glad that you mentioned those sidebars. That was something as I was reading through, I think I like stuck a post-it on the first one I saw with like a big exclamation mark because I'm not used to seeing that in a print book, but it is actually something that we're more familiar with in an online context where there will be hyperlinks to other finding aids or things like that. And, and so I was so excited. I felt like the researcher was really, um, at the top of everyone's mind as they were putting this together and thinking if a researcher was interested in this, they would not want to know about these other collections, these other finding aids. Uh, that was fantastic. It works, Jen. Thank you. That, you're, you're affirming our intent. And, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of kind words from, from colleagues already saying, this is great. I had no idea, you know, and like me, they had, uh, been focused on a certain part of the collection, but now they were thinking about something completely different. And, and now it occurs to them that HSP has something to offer to that new project and that new interest. That's great. Uh, and you've already started talking a little bit about these essays that accompany each item. There's a really large and impressive team of experts that came together to write all of those. And I was wondering if you could describe that group of people a little bit more of their areas of expertise and the kinds of perspectives that they're bringing to the analysis and description that they provide. Yeah, so uh, I'll keep going with the uh, process, you know, the editorial process, which will get us into uh, this new question. So uh, as the editorial team met, we would talk about what uh, items or what collections we wanted to highlight in the book. And then we would discuss who is the ideal person to write that essay. And we ended up, uh, uh, for efficiency's sake, about 40% of the book is written by the eight members of the editorial team. So, you know, I wrote the introduction and uh, two of the short essays. Uh, there are a couple uh, of the editorial, couple members of the editorial team who wrote six and one who even wrote eight uh, essays. So collectively, we wrote about 40 of the 100 essays. Uh, in total, there were 58 authors uh, who, who contributed to the volume. 
And uh, in, in many cases, they were sort of the best known expert who had looked at that collection or that kind of uh, material, who had asked those kinds of questions. Um, in many cases, they're, they're senior scholars, but in other cases, they're emerging scholars, you know, where this might be one of their first publications. Uh, most of the uh, contributing authors were uh, academics, some are museum professionals. Uh, there are a couple journalists who contributed uh, to, to the project. Um, and uh, nearly everybody that we asked said yes, which was great. And sometimes we would ask them to write about you know, a particular topic and they'd say, you know, I'm not really doing that anymore. But I see, uh, I, I would send them a PowerPoint that we had put together and, you know, it would say, um, David Brigham is writing this essay, Randall Miller is writing this essay. If there was no author, then it was still up for grabs. And so an author would sometimes surprise us and say, I'd really like to write about that topic. Um, but the illustration you've chosen, I think I'd rather have this instead. So there was back and forth. We, we did have um, kind of an iterative process. And as we got deeper into the table of contents, there would sometimes be occasions where someone on the editorial team would say, you know, David, I know you love to write about art history and, you know, cultural institutional history, but I think we're getting too heavy in that area and we need more of this over here. And so we would, we would bat that around and uh, we, you know, we would talk about, okay, well, what, what would be the best example of that in the collection and who would be the best person to write that essay? Um, and, you know, sometimes the folks who wrote the essays are, almost uniquely qualified. So uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, mention uh, Patrick Urban, who wrote about some of the early German settlers in uh, Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia in particular. And uh, Patrick is a native German speaker. Um, he is well steeped in religious history and literary history. So that's a collection of knowledge and a skill set that is, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people who can do all of those things. And, and Patrick wrote about um, Francis Daniel Pastorius, who's widely considered to be, you know, sort of the founder of the German community here um, in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, he, he also wrote about a, um, an Anabaptist sect that's uh, settled here in Pennsylvania with the idea of, um, waiting for the second coming of Christ uh, under the leadership of Johannes Kelpius. So, um, you know, just really, really fascinating topics that touch on uh, religion, mysticism, uh, uh, you know, early American literature, poetry, hymn writing, uh, frock tour, uh, artwork, um, uh, you know, communities within communities, immigration, just, just so many topics are embedded in those two essays. And um, again, I think, you know, someone who brought an incredible depth of knowledge and, and skills uh, to writing those essays. Yeah. They're, they're really wonderful to read. And as you mentioned, a lot of like really fascinating niche areas of interest that I had not thought about uh, in this, this area of early American history. Um, one of the things that 
came to mind to me when I was reading the book was who's represented in the materials. And you've alluded already that like when selecting things, you weren't really just looking to founding fathers and other icons of, of American history, but also um, the the folks in labor movements and, and things like that. So I'm curious to hear you describe who we see represented directly and indirectly in the material here. And from that, who do you think can connect with the material in this book? And perhaps who do you think might connect with it who might not have automatically assumed that they would connect with it? Yeah, again, I, th I think that um, we, we really have uh, incredibly rich collections uh, that that tell the stories of people of color and uh, African American history is is one of our uh, richest areas and and maybe not fully expected by by everyone. Uh, Gary Nash, who's obviously a very renowned uh, hist historian of of the United States, uh, wrote an important book called Forging Freedom. Uh, that, that describes the formation of the free black community in, in Philadelphia. So uh, Gary's work really points the way into HSP's collections. Um, and um, uh, Emma Lapsansky is another scholar who has done, you know, remarkable work on the, on the free black community in Philadelphia in the 19th century. Uh, Nell Irvin Painter, who's a, a retired professor from uh, Princeton, uh, wrote a, a really fabulous essay about William Still, who uh, is, is widely regarded as the kind of leader on the ground of the Underground Railroad here in Philadelphia. So if uh, a person escaping from slavery came to Philadelphia, they probably landed at William Still's front doorstep. He was a coal merchant, a free black man, uh, prosperous, and he was also entrusted with funds that were raised by uh, abolitionists, you know, people like Frederick Douglass and uh, white abolitionist ministers uh, would, would collect funds at public events and through other means. Uh, and William Still was one of the people who was entrusted with those, um, with those donations. And so uh, in a very uh, incredible book in our collection called Journal C, uh, which you know, sort of tantalizes us that there may have been an A and a B that have not survived, or perhaps maybe they're still out there. But Journal C was donated to uh, the Historical Society in 1931 by William Still's daughter, Frances. Uh, so, so we've been the um, steward for that volume for, you know, 90 plus years. And so uh, in, in Nell's retirement, she earned a Master's of Fine Art degree um, and she has become a very accomplished printmaker. So she approached her essay as both a historian and storyteller as a, as a scholar, but also as a visual artist. And she created a suite of three prints, um, which uh, sort of abstract what the roots, the organic roots of the Underground Railroad uh, looked like. So it's sort of like a map. Um, and it has kind of rivulets that converge at the upper right corner of the uh, composition. And I said, no, that, that's really beautiful. Uh, how did you come up with that visual um, you know, metaphor for the Underground Railroad? She said, well, I was trying to figure that out for myself. And I was uh, 
looking at the produce that I had just brought home. And on my counter was a Portuguese melon. And it had these, uh, these lines on the rind. And, and I decided that that was my, you know, my vehicle for creating the, the, uh, the roots of the Underground Railroad converging in Philadelphia. So, um, so we, we acquired uh, the prints for the collection and we uh, allowed Nell, uh, invited Nell to publish both a narrative and a visual interpretation of Journal C. And, and that was exciting too. When you come back to your earlier question about what do you hope will come out of the book? Uh, we, we, I hope, and I've been encouraging my colleagues uh, to continue serving, which we do very actively and I think very well, when someone comes in and says, I'm trying to write this book or I'm trying to, you know, maybe it's a high school student or a college student or a graduate student trying to tell this story. What does HSP have? And we help them find those resources. But we also want to be producers. Uh, so Nell produced those. We didn't. But but I'm trying to get our colleagues to be thinking very proactively about what they can add to the story and how they can be uh, historians and storytellers as well as facilitators. Um, so back to your question that, that we're currently uh, responding to is that uh, I hope that people of, of diverse backgrounds can see themselves in our collections and see their histories reflected. And um, uh, the collection of African-American history is just one of many. The Balsh collections, again, tell the stories of people coming from 80 nations around the world uh, to, to Philadelphia, but also to other parts of the United States. What were their motivations? What were the push factors? What were the pull factors? Uh, how do they navigate the demands of assimilation with their desire to maintain their cultural identities? Uh, how do they do that through language, through religion, through education, through uh, uh, forming and, and joining uh, beneficial you know, societies, uh, support networks, um, through, through dress, through food? Um, so all of those things are reflected in our collection. We have an enormous collection of cookbooks, for example, and food history is reflected in two of the essays, uh, one by Megan Elias about Martha Washington's cookbook. And Megan tells us that Martha didn't cook from her cookbook. We're not surprised by that. Uh, in fact, uh, this manuscript cookbook is not even in Martha's hand. It was passed down to her from the Custis family. Uh, the family of her first husband. Uh, so it was actually handwritten in, in England in the late 17th century and passed down in the 18th century to Martha Washington. And it would have been part of the household uh, that was run by enslaved people here in Philadelphia in the president's house and at Mount Vernon. And Megan and other food historians um, surmised that the food probably would be pretty tasty to our palates. It looks like bland English uh, 17th century food, but it would have been inflected by Caribbean and African spices and other food ways. So that's a really interesting story. And then uh, Dania Pilgrim writes about the history of black caterers. Uh, and we have uh, records of black caterers going back to Robert Bogle, who uh, was hired uh, to uh, cook for the Marquis de Lafayette and the um, leading citizens of Philadelphia 
when Lafayette made his tour of America in 1824. Uh, and more specifically, Daniel writes about the Dutriel Catering Company, which was a black uh, owned black run business here in Philadelphia and a collection that came to us again through the Balsh Institute. Um, we have Native American histories going back to William Penn and the first deed between Penn's agents and the Lenny Lenape. We have uh, the you know no notorious walking purchase uh, map, uh, which was you know uh, really uh, uh, an abomination and a and a you know um, disregard by his sons for the principles that William Penn stood for uh, and a gross taking advantage of of that trust. Um, and we we also have the Indian Rights Association papers, another enormous collection. Uh, which traces uh, what was in its day regarded as a progressive institution, but uh, was very aggressively uh, pursuing an agenda of uh, Indian assimilation uh, through Indian boarding schools and through other means uh, to, you know, to sort of quote, educate uh, Native Americans to, to uh, integrate into the American uh, obviously European American, uh, white American uh, fabric of the nation. So, so there are very complex stories that are reflected in the collection and uh, in the essays that, that we chose. And, and hopefully they invite scholars of all backgrounds in uh, to, to take advantage of that. One more example I'll cite, uh, Lee Arnold, our librarian emeritus wrote about uh, John Fryer. John Fryer was an advocate for the LGBTQ community. Uh, he was a psychiatrist. And at the national meeting of the American Psychiatric Association in 1972, he gave a famous speech uh, that argued that being gay is not a mental illness and it should be removed from the DSM, the official list of mental illnesses. And he was successful. A committee was formed. And the next year in 1973, uh, the DSM eliminated homosexuality as a disease. Um, and that opened the door for uh, laws protecting domestic partner associations, eventually for uh, single sex marriage. And it continues to be um, a, you know, a very important document in the ongoing advocacy for uh, equity and, and you know, laws that protect the rights of uh, gay Americans. Oh, thank you. I, and I think I can see really clearly um, all of the ways that this book helps connect researchers from a huge range of disciplines and backgrounds. Uh, but I also really appreciate your your earlier example of the creative printmaking work also that came out of this. And I know sometimes there's a little hesitation um, on not on the side of creators, but on the side of archives to to really fully embrace the fact that creative work might come out of their collections. Uh, it's something that artists are doing, but not every archive has has figured out how to um, really, yeah, really embrace that. And I, I think it's neat to see and and communicate in this book that that's something that this work can do also. And it would be really exciting to see more creative work come out of these collections. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about that also. I think, you know, this comes out of my uh, personal interests, my scholarly interests, 
we have a board member named Curly Holton, who is a visual artist, a painter, and a printmaker. And Curly is a, a very collaborative, uh, creative person. Uh, he formed two collaborative printmaking workshops, one called the Experimental Printmaking Institute at Lafayette College, and one uh, that he currently operates called Raven Editions, uh, which is a private studio where he invites artists in uh, to work with him. And the idea is that uh, as two artists, they can create something together that neither one of them might do or could do on their own. Uh, so Curly has actually established a, um, an artist in residency program here at HSP. And the first artist uh, to, to, uh, to come and be with us is Melvin Edwards. And Mel has created uh, an original work of art uh, inspired by the Philadelphia uh, record photo morgue. The record was a daily newspaper uh, that, that became defunct in the middle of the 20th century and all of its archived photos, uh, literally uh, tens of thousands of photographs came to HSP. And uh, Mel singled out the photographs of Father Divine. Uh, and there is actually an essay in the book by Alice George about the photo record, uh, the, the photo morgue of the record. And uh, she chose Father Divine also out of these tens of thousands of photographs. So Mel came in, he studied these uh, dozens of photographs of Father Divine, who was a religious leader, a civil rights leader, um, and, um, and a community leader, and, uh, and made a new work of art out of that. Uh, the, the John Fryer papers, which I mentioned, inspired uh, a, a, a play uh, through a grant from the Pew Foundation called Artist Embedded, uh, where a playwright named Ain Gordon came in and wrote a, a play called 219 Boxes, which is the extent of that collection about the life of John Fryer and his activism uh, that I mentioned earlier. So, so we're very much hopeful um, and, and currently, as we move into 2024, which again is our 200th year, our 200th anniversary year, and, and one of the uh, you know, points of inspiration for this book, uh, we're, we're working with other nonprofits in Philadelphia. And our first partner is the Association for Public Art, uh, which, which is the creator over the last uh, you know, 150 years or so of most of the public sculpture throughout the city of Philadelphia. And uh, we have invited them uh, to come in and use our collections. Our collections actually include their institutional archives going back to their founding. Uh, so in some ways, our archives are their archives, at least that subset is. And they will be organizing an exhibition. They've invited an artist named Zenobia Bailey to create new artwork out of the collection. Uh, which will be displayed on uh, street banners throughout Philadelphia in uh, early to mid-2024. So new production, inspiration out of the archives is, is very much one of the things that we're hoping will come out of the book and out of our uh, collections over the uh, coming, not just year, but generation. Fantastic. Um, and one other thing, that I was thinking a lot about while I was reading this book. And we've alluded to this already in, in your description of some of the material in the book is how when we talk about something, we're not really talking about that thing. Um, an object can help us have bigger conversations. So there's an essay about Hamilton's Freedom Box. It's actually 
a, a discussion about debates over free speech or there's this ribbon sample book from Horseman and Sons and it's really there to have conversations about labor conditions in the 19th century. And so from that more abstract angle, I'm curious about other conversations this book might propel and maybe in part conversations about, you know, these bigger topics unpacked by the objects, but maybe also conversations about how institutions talk about their collections and guide people through their collections and realize what's in their collections? Yeah, that's a great multi-layered question, Jen, and, and uh, I'm happy to try to take it on. Um, so you, you mentioned the Freedom Box and the Horseman collection. Uh, both are really interesting uh, uh, collections. And part of what we are trying to do is say that any one item or any one collection can tell multiple stories. And so even if someone or many someone's have already investigated a collection, uh, there's something new to be learned and told from those collections. Um, because one of the things I was taught in graduate school, and I, I still think they're words to live by, is that history can't only be about the past. It's about the past in conversation with the present. So our needs as a society and a civilization today, as they relate to uh, gender histories, uh, ethnic histories, racial histories, uh, those can be investigated in uh, our historical documents. And, you know, we'll sometimes hear that, well, you can't hold the founders accountable for being slave owners or for supporting slavery because that's a presentist view. Well, it's actually not. If you go back to the documents, uh, for example, one of our large collections is the papers of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, uh, which was formed in 1775, so right in the heart of the revolutionary moment, on the principle that uh, slavery is wrong, it's unsustainable, and it's contrary to the Quaker faith of many of the founders of the Abolition Society. Um, so in their, in their opinion, it was morally wrong and just you know uh, something that needed to be uh, ended. And so their first accomplishment was to pass the uh, Pennsylvania Gradual Abolition Act in 1780. Um, so that uh, did not eliminate slavery immediately. It ended the slave trade in Pennsylvania immediately. People who were the children of enslaved people were slaves until their mid-20s. Um, but it at least created a path uh, whereby they could uh, you know, activate, support, and live by their uh, moral standards. So the, the collection allows us to ask those questions. Um, and you know, uh, similar examples could be asked throughout. The, the Horseman collection that you mentioned is a very rich uh, source for industrial history. Uh, and Walter Licht, who wrote that essay, uh, also found that in the uh, records of employment, uh, there, there are disciplinary actions taken against some of the employees, including women. Um, and basically, they were disciplined for, you know, speaking up, for being, uh, for asserting themselves. So, uh, you know, do we find men disciplined for those kinds of things? No, actually, we don't, at least not in the horseman uh, record. So, so it does show women in the workforce, and it also shows um, how they were sort of, you know, tried, how the... Uh, management would try to contain them and um, and you know uh, keep keep them in you know quote order. Um, 
the the William Penn papers here are enormous. And you know, we when we were founded in 1824, uh, one of our founders, Peter Duponceau, who was a French immigrant, uh, uh, had had started an annual dinner uh, in in the early 1820s. Uh, actually, 1823, right on the eve of our founding, uh, to celebrate the founding of Pennsylvania and and our founder, and so there was very much a you know celebratory history, and and in many ways that's deserved because he was uh, a man who who ex, you know extolled principles and lived by them, um, but it it also gives us the chance to ask new questions of them. So Nicole Eustace, for example, wrote a beautiful book uh, that was published in 2021 and won the Pulitzer in 22. Uh, it's called Covered with Night. And it's about uh, the you know, living side by side between uh, colonial Americans, British Americans, and indigenous peoples. And a moment of conflict in 1722 went to uh, colonists, two, two commercial agents, went out to the Susquehanna and tried to buy their furs, their their winter, uh, the you know the the successes of their winter hunt, and they offered rum, and the and the natives said, well, we don't want your rum. Your rum is killing our people, and and they offered him more rum, thinking that he was uh, bargaining, and so the a conflict broke out, and they bashed his skull in with the butt end of one of their rifles. And it set off a diplomatic crisis between the colonial world and the, um, and the nations of, of native peoples uh, from New York to Virginia. So it's, it's an incredible story told in remarkable detail from multiple perspectives. And it shows how the papers of William Penn are rich enough to enable you know, a, a celebratory biography of William Penn as well as a very honest, um, you know, twenty first century look at at what cost that that colonial settlement was um, was created. Absolutely. Um, well, I have taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I'm really curious to hear what's next for you and for the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know if you have any projects or events growing out of this book that you want to highlight, or if there are new projects you're undertaking that you'd like to let listeners know about. Yeah, uh, again, a great question, Jen. So a couple things. Uh, on view currently in our information commons is uh, a lovely exhibit uh, inspired by uh, Phyllis Wheatley's uh, book of poems, which was published in London in 1773. Uh, I'm sure your listeners know Phyllis Wheatley, but I'll just say it anyway. Uh, she was an enslaved woman in Boston and uh, uh, came here, was brought here from Africa and immediately enslaved upon her arrival. And, uh, and she became, a, you know, a literary uh, accomplished woman and the first uh, black woman published poet, uh, and her book was again published 250 years ago. So on the occasion of that celebration, our uh, conservator, whose name is Tara O'Brien, uh, brought together a group of women that uh, belonged to a guild of artist book uh, bookmakers here in the Delaware Valley, and they invited uh, the recent past youth poet laureate of Philadelphia. Uh, to write a poem inspired by the example of uh, Phyllis Wheatley. 
And then each of the members created a unique one-of-a-kind book inspired by that dialogue across, you know, the centuries and the generations um, and, and to create some visual expression of how they were touched by the, by the story. Um, so that's one example of another project that's coming out of the investigations of, of this book. Uh, I mentioned the partnership that we have with the Association for Public Art. Uh, we're also partnering with the uh, Independence Hall Foundation. They're currently in the process of raising money to restore the first bank building of the United States, uh, Hamilton's Bank, uh, here on Third Street in, in Philadelphia. And uh, so we'll be diving into economic history. Uh, we have the papers of the Bank of North America, uh, which was founded during the American Revolution, chartered by Continental Congress in 1781, uh, approximately a decade before Hamilton's, uh, quote, first bank was established. So Bank of North America, first bank, second bank, uh, so financial history, that, that's one of the things we'll be investigating this year. Um, we are partnering with the Genealogical Society of Pennsylvania. About half of our uh, researchers come here to investigate their personal family histories. Um, and we have a full-time genealogist who wrote a, an essay in the book about the Wharton family Bible. Uh, but you don't have to have a you know famous name like Wharton uh, to, to come to HSP and, and find your own past. Uh, we know that that's something that many people are trying to figure out today, and it's it's become one of the most popular uh, pastimes in the United States. Um, certainly, online resources can take you a long way, uh, but we have many unique resources, and we're highlighting those. And we also offer classes and services to help people uh, overcome obstacles. Um, so those are some of the things we're, we're doing. We've got uh, a web page that we're currently in the process of building on our website at hsp.org, uh, where people can track our 200th anniversary year and where they can, um, uh, you know, find out what uh, speakers we'll be having, what programs we'll be having. Uh, we'll also have a, a street festival in October in 2024, um, where all of our partners uh, will be encouraged to create some interactive exercise well, food trucks and things like that. So it'll be a real uh, community gathering uh, right here at 13th and Locust Street in Philadelphia. That's fantastic. Uh, lots of fun things coming up. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, and once again, I've been speaking with David Brigham, editor of 200 Years, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania from 1824 to 2024. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.